because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. We'll get into it, but Justin's happy to like live right here all the time. He wants to live in the metaverse, in the matrix, <laughs> in a milk goo, you're whatever. Up, you're, you're already giving up my <laughs> my jam. <laughs> but I'm like, I need to put my head somewhere else once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, welcome yes. to Cows in the Field. This is a show where we explore philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. Now, today's movie is the fourth of a trilogy that has been heralded by some as the most philosophical film franchise of the last 50 years. It is The Matrix Resurrections. And we're fortunate to be joined today by David Chalmers. Dave is a professor of philosophy and neuroscience and co-director of the Center of Mind, Brain, and Consciousness at NYU. He is also the author of several books, including the just-released Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds, and the Problems of Philosophy, which is about the reality of virtual reality. And a longtime fan, if I can say that, of the Matrix movies. Welcome, Dave. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. So, okay, let's talk. Let's just get into the Matrix Resurrections because I'm curious what you thought of the movie. I mean, what were your? I saw you put a you know a thread on Facebook, and you know, tell us what you thought of the fourth movie. As a movie, I thought it started great, but it didn't really deliver. Um, I thought the first thirty minutes were amazing. I loved. The first thirty minutes with the uh, the video game, the modal, the simulation, offshoot of the video game, um, all the meta talk about you know, <laughs> the, the new sequel to the uh, to the Matrix trilogy. Oh, Morpheus, the new Morpheus inside the simulation, inside the modal, makes his way out. That was all great, and so I thought, okay, yeah, we've got simulations within simulations, possibly within simulations. It's like, this is all set up to go crazy. And then it just kind of gradually returned to more standard Matrix themes. Like the next half hour, okay, we got some, uh, we got some red pill, blue pill. We got some, uh, some breaking out of the Matrix. Fine. That was like, that was like, uh, that was like the first movie. We got some dojo. We got some construct. <laughs> we got some, uh, some dojo. We got some brains and pods. <laughs> yeah, I like that. But this is now, okay, this is now returning to the first movie. I like the first movie, so not so bad. But after that, on the other hand, everything after we go to, uh, to IO, I guess it is, the new Zion, uh, I don't know. By that point, it felt like it was turning into the second movie and the mm. third movie. We got the. The Merovingian, we got, <laughs> we got, uh, we got Sati, we got Niobe, and I don't know. It just felt to be okay. The video game totally fell out. Simulations within our simulation totally fell out. It was mostly action, and not the greatest action at that. It was a bit of love story, actually. Maybe the love story was a bit better handled in this movie than in the uh, the previous mm. ones. I mean, I found Neo and Trinity more believable as a couple mm. in this movie than before. But still, the love story was never why I came to the matrix yeah. so uh i don't know by the end it just felt like a pretty much a retread of, of original matrix mm -hmm. whereas the beginning 
had held out the hope we were going to go in some new directions. Yeah. How many times have you seen it? Did you just see it once or, or you've seen it multiple times? Just once and I've watched clips again here and there. Yeah, that's then. what we did too, actually. I, I feel like I enjoyed it more on the second time, but I'm curious, Laura, what you, what you thought. I, I overall, I think, liked it more than you did on the first uh-huh. view. Um, I'm not as hardcore of a Matrix fan as as you as you guys are. Um, I have... I had, had actually never seen it, I feel like, until my 20s. And then I met you and then we've mm. rewatched them again and again. Um, I don't always, I always like have like a, I bristle at when we reboot or bring back movies 20 years later. And also we sort of bring back the original characters. I always feel like it's an opportunity to just do something completely new. I'm thinking of like all the ones that Harrison Ford has been in recently. <laughs> like yeah. we bring them back for Star Wars. We bring them back for Blade Runner. And I... I find myself bristling at that, but this time around I didn't, um, partially because I feel like Lana Wachowski and the Matrix family seems to love each other so very much. Yeah. And it was actually a real pleasure to watch Keanu Reeves be back on screen with Carrie and Moss. And I just, you could like feel the love in that movie. Um, not just the love story, um, but just how much like the actors and crew love each other. You pointed out that Tr- Trinity, Trinity is Tiffany in this new reboot of The Matrix. And her husband is the... Is Chad. Chad. He's the director of the John Wick movies. Yeah. Right. He's the director but he of John started, Wick. he was a choreographer for Matrix. Yeah. And then he, he partnered up with um, Keanu. So it's just like, it's like the whole extended family, um, which I agree with you. Like, I'm not, sh- agree with you, David. I'm not sure that we needed to bring back Sati and the Merovingian and every single character. But at the same time, it felt like a little warm and cozy, like Lana was calling all of her friends, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, come back and just yell about Facebook for a minute. <laughs> I did have to say I liked the Merovingian's uh, cameo, personally. But, uh, what to, was it, Zucker Suck? That was good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Zucker Suck. And, but Dave, to your point, I mean, the love story, actually, mm. for me, when I was watching it for the first time, I thought, similarly, I thought, ah... I'm not here for a love story. I know there's a love story in the original Matrix, but it all felt sort of beside <laughs> the point, and I was interested in the philosophical stuff. But interestingly, I agree with you, Dave, that this one, I feel like the moment they first have coffee, sit down and have coffee, Neo mm-hmm. and, and Trinity, and it's it felt to me so uncomfortable in the way that it's uncomfortable when you're reconnecting with someone you haven't connected with in a long time, or you're just trying to meet mm-hmm. friends as an adult, and you're not totally sure how to navigate these waters or you're dating as an adult, like there's just like layers of awkwardness there. And, you know, both of them have a have a history. They don't realize it's a shared history, but they have this history and they're just trying to figure each other out. And I found there was such like tenderness with how they handled that. So I really didn't. I, and watching it again, this, the, it really, the stuff you were saying, Laura, comes out where you're like, oh yeah, th- these people do love each other in real life. Like they're friends they seem to get along and it's really, you, that sort of translates on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I wasn't sure I ever got that from the first three movies. I got that a lot more from this movie yeah. than before. Previously, you know, Neo and Trinity seem to be two people just there and, oh yeah, we're meant to love each other. So, okay. Right. Yeah. I, th- I totally agree. I think, I think the love story was more developed in this. And I think part of that was that they had an opportunity to like have small talk. You know, like that's not something they were really doing in, <laughs> right. in the first movies because they were too busy saving the world. There's like um, all their dialogue had to be exposition, basically. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I thought it was really interesting that it seemed like from your Facebook thread, uh, Dave, that the philosophers, and I would have counted myself among them, and I guess I still do, largely were not, I don't know, satisfied with the movie. And I, I think we can get into why that is. 
But interestingly, a lot of critics have been really interested, like really excited by the movie. Um, so, mm-hmm. and it also, but it does have a lot of detractors among Matrix fans as well, not just among philosophers. And I, I, I think the meta elements of the film have resonated with critics. And I think that's a part of the reason they've resonated with critics is that I think a lot of critics are exhausted by, like you, Laura, the reboot culture that we're in and this like Marvel thing where you have to watch 20 movies in order to watch the latest Marvel movie. You don't know what's going on. This, you know, obsession with building a world and IP and collecting it up. And one of the big things uh, of the summer was, well, not big. I mean, one of the big like Warner Brothers attempts to be a big thing, I guess, of the summer was um space jam which is just basically a collection of intellectual property put mm-hmm. on display as an ad for hbo max um and and i think this movie was was really at least at the beginning of it it starts out like it's the positioning itself as the antithesis of that like trying to do almost the exact opposite thing and i think a lot of critics responded to that Did, i mean dave you really liked the the meta stuff too um can do you do you want to say a little bit more about what what jumped out to you about that stuff? I mean, I liked the meta stuff, but uh, it felt like it was mostly commentary rather than really integrated yeah. with the uh, with the movie. Maybe at the beginning, we had the video game, we had the uh, the reboot, and maybe that had the potential to be integrated, but it wasn't really integrated at the level of plot. The plot of the movie felt relevantly similar to the uh, to the first and so on, but it was great to hear you know f- the various uh, you know the various ways that people have received <laughs> the Matrix. Is it trans politics? Is it crypto fascism? Is it an allegory of of this or of that? So you know, I mean, it's just about bullet time. I loved, uh, <laughs> it all comes down to bullet time. One word, bullet time. <laughs> One word. Um, <laughs> so I I've been actually I have to admit this on Mike. So I've been sort of struggling with this for the last few days. And I mean, I initially responded very negatively to the movie. I was completely ambivalent and I had to, so I wrote this thing uh, on D movies that I, um, and now I want to actually refine a little bit because I, when we watched it again and, and reading stuff, I started to think about the movie from a slightly different perspective. And I think that there is a meta angle here that actually is kind of interesting so one way to read the movie is as a first order narrative. And I think as a first order narrative, it it doesn't quite work. And we can go into why in, in a second. But there's, of course, also a second order narrative, I think, that's actually much more interesting. So the second order narrative or allegory, I guess it would be, is take Neo as a surrogate for Lana Wachowski, the director of the film. And if you think of it that way, that he's supposed to be an he and actually, excuse me, Neo and Trinity are together, uni, like united the allegory for Lana Wachowski. And then what it's depicting is the experience uh, of a creator of something that they've lost control of. It's become bigger than them, but they're also sort of held hostage to it. Right. So in the film, Neo is hostage to the analyst he who's basically forcing him to play out the same scenarios over and over again and be constantly right about to connect to Tiffany or or Trinity, um, but not. And that is what's powering the city now, um, is is his sort of longing for her. And similarly, you might think Lana Wachowski is being sort of forced to buy Warner Brothers in a way to retread the same narrative stuff again and again. Now she's got to go back to the Matrix and so on. And of course, she's a different person now, right? She's she's transitioned. 
And she's not really interested in the themes uh, of the original Matrix, perhaps. She doesn't really know what to say, and she feels somewhat trapped by it. But then I think what's also kind of interesting about this way of going is that it's ultimately her friends, that is Neo's friends, who rescue Neo from the Matrix. And Neo realizes that he has to embrace his sort of, his transitioned other self, namely Trinity, in order to like realize their true potential. And I think what's also interesting is at the very end of the film, um, the two of them confront the analyst and they sort of beat him up. And then they... Uh, then they say, well, we're not here to bargain. We're, we're here to thank you for the opportunity. And if you think of it on this, on this kind of allegory for the film, it's basically Lana Wachowski, first of all, beating up Warner Brothers, which she did in the film. I mean, she calls them out explicitly, but then saying, thank you for the opportunity. I got to go back and hang out with my friends and I got to go back to this. And then they fly off and that's it. And, I, and that could be just symbolic of her just leaving the franchise behind. Like that's, that's it's over I'm not going I'm not going to go back to this well anymore. And when I thought a little bit about that, I thought it is kind of interesting because it's sort of telling her story. So it's in a way like it works as a Lana Wachowski movie, less as a perhaps as a Matrix movie. And I thought that's subversive because you're taking this property which is beloved and you're taking all this money from Warner Brothers and then you're kind of going to stomp on all of it. But I thought that was kind of an interesting way to approach it and it made me feel like it was uh richer in, in, in certain respects yeah that's super interesting and uh yeah it's, it's a it's a positive spin one disanalogy i guess from the lena wachowski versus trinity point of view is that in the movie we go from uh, we go from the one uh neo to the two neo and trinity that's a very big uh, that's a very yeah. big theme whereas at the level of the wachowskis we go from uh, we go from two, namely mm-hmm. Lena and Lily, uh, to one Lena, who's doing this all all by herself. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how to reconcile that transition of the, really the loss of uh, of Lily and doing it all as uh, as uh, as Lena with this uh, with this theme that no, we've got to do all this uh, together. That's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that because I was thinking of it like uh, they're both parts of her personality, right? Her pre-transition self and her post-transition self. But that's mm-hmm. really interesting to think of it like um, like, like it's, it's the inverse of, what, um, uh, of, of the loss of your creative partner. Um, I think, though, the first order narrative we, we should actually talk a little bit about before we get into the philosophy be, because I actually think as a first order narrative, it doesn't quite work. And part of the reason it doesn't quite work is something that you brought up, Laura. Well, one of the things that I had noticed that maybe rubbed me the wrong way for, for or I just was, my my, my sensors were up before it was for COVID reasons, is this this question about, you know, saving one versus many. Um, tr- because in the previous one, in the previous films, there, the architect, I think, does talk to Neo about how his love for humanity is specific versus general, and that's the first time this has happened, right? In this iteration of of the one, um, he always he always chooses to save Trinity over other people. Um, but in the end, he does save all of Zion. He and Trinity sacrifice themselves this, to save yeah. all of Zion. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. In this film, he shows up and he immediately wants to save Trinity again because he realizes that she's also enslaved him, um, and he meets up with Niobe. 
and Niobe, you know, says we have an entire city here and we actually have peace. You've managed to create a peace in which, you know, the machines are actually helping us create a better city and we have a better life. Right. And we should be clear that that peace is founded on Tr- Neo and Trinity being their sacrifice, their sacrifice, right? They're yes. being invaded and yes. being the battery power for the entire city that the machines don't mm-hmm. need to go and destroy Zion because they're they have their own power source now. Right. Um, and, you know, Neo's response is just like, I have to go save my girlfriend. <laughs> I, <laughs> and she says, you know, even if it means, you know, risking the, the, the safety uh, of the entire city of Io and creating more war, this this other matrix, she calls it a matrix, but it's a matrix of its own war. Um, you want to bring that back to our people? And he's just like, my girlfriend's in trouble, you know, <laughs> and and eventually Niobe gets on board, but there isn't really any more grappling with that. But I, I did find that a little strange you know i think we're, we're constantly having these conversations now in covid times about sort of weighing um the benefit and risks of our of our personal selves and our own little you know our own families versus the wider issues of public health um and uh, i did find it a little a little odd that it was just like niobe was raising some important points <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't now i'm just trying to remember how it went didn't sati tell them at some point that the machines were actually on the point of resetting the whole matrix yes so they had to do they had to do something about this and if they hadn't then i don't know what have what would have happened to all those people on the matrix so now we got to balance all those matrix people against these physical io people and how how do you make that calculation yeah. i don't know maybe it comes down to the numbers yeah and i think it, but it was set up by them removing neo right because they had a good system it seemed they had a battery system that was working and now that neo was gone trinity wasn't providing enough power so they were going to have to reboot the matrix and sort of start Mm -hmm. over and on this point too i was i was thinking about the resonance with this movie and the last jedi and the character of niobe uh and how she's in in conversation with the laura dern character vice admiral holdo in the last jade and there's a scene where poe has gone and done something heroic and basically you know screwed it up right mm-hmm. um the fleet is destroyed and laura dern's character vice admiral holdo chastises Poe and dresses him down uh, for for putting, you know, the larger community at risk, right. for putting the larger mission at risk. And she basically says, like, we don't need any of your heroic antics. Like, we don't need a strong-headed white dude guy to come in here and want to be a hero and have do things his own way and ruin it for the rest of us. <laughs> mm. You might want to have some, you know, faith that there are people who uh, have a bigger, you know, a bigger perspective than you and know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no such moment in this movie. It's that's not the movie that we're having again. I think in that moment. Well, she there is that moment. It's just that Niobe is not there in that moment portrayed as um as a wise, as justified, as, as justified. Yeah, that's yes. right. That's right. Right. I think in that in in Last Jedi, as, yeah. we're thinking like, yeah, Poe's being kind of a dick. Like <laughs> he needs to get it together. And in this movie, we're like, Naomi, oh, she's being you're a scold. such a bummer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like you're old and you're you're a bummer now. And like we're with Neo yeah. all the way through. Um, that's what that you know. It's just a different movie. Yeah, Neo gets this really good line of like, I just got out of the prison, and now you're going to put me back in prison. Right. Yeah. And you do, you know, of course you're feeling like that's totally unfair. Yeah. But is it unfair? <laughs> is what I'm <laughs> is what I'm asking. I think, you know, th- from the first three movies, the 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 situation that seemed to be 
that had developed was basically this kind of cyclical war that had, right? So it was like, we'll, we need to allow some of you to escape the matrix because that's how, you know, we've learned the only way that we can keep this system in place. But we can't allow too many to escape the matrix because then you'll threaten us. So that's why we just periodically destroy Zion. And then, so it's just this cyclical war. We do that and then we, re, you, we let you rebuild and so on. And so that's how this goes. But the, the solution to that was basically okay, we're going to kind of create this sort of uneasy truce, which as we learned in this movie has sus sustained itself. There's it continues to be this uneasy truce. Of course, the uneasy truce is itself founded on a sacrifice of two individuals, a very big sacrifice too. They're in basically hell. You might think of it a version of hell. They have like a kind of eternal life that's, you know, not pure suffering, but it is a kind of suffering. Um, but their removal from that hell now, I suspect if you're just thinking like, okay, well, what's going to happen very likely is going to be a return to the original cyclical uh, situation of now they're going to, if they machines want power, they're going to have to do it the old fashioned way. And, um, and that could result in more war. So I think, you know, it, it, in a way, it disturbs that sort of anti-binary message that the movie is pushing at times where the thought is like, well, the, the solution to our problems is like an integration, right? We integrate with the machines and we become ever more, you know, eroding the, these uh, distinctions between man and machine and, and, and that sort of and war and peace and that kind of thing. It all just kind of gets eroded and we sort of recognize our symbiotic relationship and that gets disrupted then by, by this choice that Neo does. And the movie, again, understood purely as a first order narrative, seems to celebrate that. And I think that I find, I just find unsatisfying. <laughs> what is, what's the key unsatisfying part? For me, it's unsatisfying because I, I thought the movie was going to say the resolution is integration. So the resolution mm. is a kind of community with machines. And that is not what we get at the end of this movie. What, instead, what we get at the end of the movie is a kind, a kind of return to the status quo of what we had before. Namely, I mean, it's open-ended, but I think very likely um, the machines are, have, been, have been sort of defeated on this point and they're going to you know, retaliate and now we're going to have a war again. Um, and so it doesn't look it doesn't look promising to me like we're going to have some sort of, you know, handshake agreement <laughs> with the machines uh, because we recognize our symbiotic relationship. I guess at the end of the third movie, we had that yeah. handshake agreement, you know, the humans and the machines getting together, maybe the matrix, the virtual world and the physical world getting together. I can't remember how it went, but maybe some people were given the choice to escape the matrix. Yep. The end of the third movie, others were given the choice to still hang out there because they were having good lives in there, which I always liked. That was kind of an integration of the uh, the physical world and the virtual world, saying actually, you know, life in the Matrix is not so bad either if it's as long as you're not under the machine's control. So yeah, I guess we kind of had that integration at the end of the third movie, and yeah, the fourth from that perspective, the fourth goes off in some slightly bleaker direction. Yeah. Uh, wait. Uh, sorry. Do you guys hear that? Yeah, it's like a beeping. Yeah. What is that? Is I think I think Emily Vanderworth, the wonderful Emily Vanderworth, critic at large at Vox and past and future guest of Cows in the Field, she senses in the universe we're talking about the Matrix right now. She senses a disturbance in the force or yes. the Matrix is rewriting itself? The Matrix is rewriting herself and she knows that we're having this conversation and we owe it to ourselves to know what Emily thinks about the Matrix. All right, let's tune in and see what she says. Esteemed friends. 
It's me, Emily Vanderwerf, star of Stage and Screen. I'm here to tell you why I think Matrix Resurrections is getting a bad rap. I don't want to tell anybody they're wrong to not like this movie, because a lot of very smart people don't like this movie, but I do think the most common critical read I'm seeing of it is that it's a cynical exercise in franchise extension, and I really don't think that's the case. I think this is a beautiful, heartfelt, deeply deeply moving movie about the ways that we try to use art to come to terms with terrible things that have happened to us. We see that both sort of in the meta-textual read of the film about Lana Wachowski coming in and reclaiming this thing that has been taken from her and misread and misinterpreted by so many different people over the years and saying, no, this is mine and here's what I think about The Matrix and this is what The Matrix is about and you can take it or leave it. But we also see this in the characters of Neo and Trinity themselves who are taken out of what was a meaningful death and placed into a new life. And yet there's something beautiful in the end about the fact that they are given another chance. This is probably the last time we're ever going to see this franchise in the way it is, given the box office of this movie. And I think there's something beautiful about leaving this in a place where these two characters who had such terrible things happen to them are given a literal chance at a new life. It's a kind of reincarnation, resurrection angle that I think is deeply meaningful if we read the original films through the lens of various religious traditions, uh, particularly Christianity and Buddhism, which are sort of in those movies in equal measure. This movie is interested in the ways that our current fascination with sort of pop psychology, um, particularly as it pertains to trauma, intersects with the idea of movie characters as real people. If you believe Neo and Trinity are real people, then what happens to them in this movie is viscerally upsetting. And I think this movie engages with that in a way that is intentional. And I think that the so-called cynicism of the early part of the film when the story is engaging with why even do another Matrix is undergirding the idea that to do another Matrix is to give Neo and Trinity a chance to be themselves, to overcome what happened to them, to maybe get another shot at a new life in a new world. And I think that's beautiful and heartfelt and interesting. And I also think this movie has a lot to say about our current moment of the internet. One of the things that was so neat about the original Matrix was the way in which it engaged with how we were understanding reality in 1999 and then in 2003 with the sequels. And this movie is similarly interested in how we now are all aware we're trapped in the matrix and yet don't really see a way out of it and have kind of just like let ourselves become part of it. There's so much in this movie that is about the ways in which we are manipulated by the machines that we exist within, algorithms or big tech companies or Mark Zuckerberg or whomever you want to sort of place the blame on this for. We're all in a space where we are forced to constantly reckon with the ways that these social media networks especially are manipulating our emotions and manipulating our very human pathways of thought to end up constantly at each other's throats. And this movie's not very subtle about that. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's like buried deeply in the subtext somewhere. It's pretty clearly in the text. But I'm interested in how this engages with that idea through the lens of thinking about the original trilogy and thinking about the ways in which 
being aware you're trapped in the matrix doesn't really free you from the matrix. Finally, as a person who's interested in reading these films through a trans lens, it is fascinating how this movie is all about how binaries are not real. The red and blue pill is a false choice. Uh, Good and evil is a false choice. Male and female is a false choice. There are all of these things that seem like they are indeed hard and fast rules of the universe, but In fact, if you look beyond them, there are vast spectrums that lie underneath them. This is a movie about how all of the things that have happened since the original trilogy have been about blurring those lines between man and machine, between good and evil, between male and female. There is an interest in this film in the idea of full spectrums, and you can see that within the colors that are used within this movie, which are richer and deeper and more plentiful than they were in the original trilogy, which was dominated by grays and greens and blacks. This is dominated by reds and blues, but there's also a golden hue within the matrix that is uh, supposed to replicate sunlight, I suppose. And there's something very beautiful about the idea that you can escape these systems. You can find a way, but you also kind of have to work within them. You kind of have to accept that there is no answer ultimately, that there is no chosen one, that there is no final destination. You are constantly and always having to fight to overcome the system that you're within. But fighting against the system also means necessarily learning a way to make the system better. You can't escape the system entirely because to do so would be to end the world, would be to create something apocalyptic. So instead, you have to find a way to make the system more equitable for more people. And that's the work of Revolution, which is, of course, the third film in the original trilogy. But it's also the work of Resurrections, of the idea that you constantly have to renew your ideas of what is right, of what is wrong, of what it means to be alive. Anyway, I think The Matrix Resurrections is about that and like 15 billion other things. I really love this movie. Uh, Again, I don't blame anybody who doesn't like it. I just think the read of it as a cynical text is, is inaccurate. There's a there's a garbage truck outside. There's always a garbage truck outside. Anyway, thank you, Cows in the Field listeners. Uh, I love all of you. And I will be back on the show soon with my garbage truck friend. Okay, I think it's a really interesting movie. And I want to continue to think about it. But I think maybe what we should do next is talk some philosophy. Because we have a fantastic philosopher here with us. And so... One of the things that when people first encounter The Matrix, the most common reaction is, oh, this is a skeptical scenario. So this is a scenario which is such that if it were true, if we were to learn that we were pods and and our brains were being stimulated to have experiences of walking around um, in, the, in the world and, and petting cats and so on. And we were told that we, we would learn this as Neo does. We would think, oh, well, I guess a great many of my ordinary beliefs were false. And thus, get, the reason why it's sometimes called a skeptical scenario is that insofar as we can't rule out on the basis of our you know, evidence that we have available, that we're not in such a matrix scenario, um, then that might prove to be uh, troublesome for our ability to have knowledge of these very ordinary mundane beliefs, like I'm petting a cat or whatever. And so that's a very standard view. And, and, And roughly, it comes down to the idea that what goes on inside the matrix is not real. 
And what goes on outside of the matrix is real. But Dave, you have a very different perspective on this. And so walk us through what your view is and sort of how we might get to that view. Yeah, I think what you said at the end is really the key thing here. Um, You know, the first reaction that many people, not all people by all means, but many people have to the matrix scenario is the matrix is a world of illusions and deception in which nothing is real. The movie tell the movies tell us to this again and again. These things are not real. Welcome to the real world. <laughs> so we get the message: physical reality is real, but these simulated realities and virtual realities, they're not real. The worlds where nothing is real, everything is an illusion. That's the view I want to combat. In fact, the uh, the central thesis of my new book, Reality Plus, is that virtual reality is genuine reality. That in principle, simulations, virtual realities, objects in those can be just as real as objects in a physical world. Indeed, it's you know it's a common idea which is out there that maybe we ourselves are living in a simulated world. I take that one seriously from time to time. But whether it's true or not, the question is: if that's true, does that mean none of this is real? I want to say no. I want to say you know yeah, we could be. It could be that underlying all this is some kind of giant simulation. If that's the case, it doesn't mean that people aren't real, that the earth isn't real, that cats and dogs aren't real. It just means that, you know, they're ultimately, they may be computational creatures. There may be a, there may be a level underneath the level of atoms and molecules and cells. There may be a level of bits in interaction. That would be an interesting fact about our world, but it wouldn't mean that nothing is real. It means we were in a world of digital objects. But I think you know digital objects are still real objects. So I think so from my point of view, the matrix alone, the mere fact that it's a simulation, does not make it immediately a dystopia, um, <laughs> an awful place where uh, where nothing is real. People can have really good lives in principle uh, in in simulations. If we're in a sim- if it turns out that we're in a simulation, that doesn't render our lives suddenly meaningless. I think, you know, if we're all in this simulation as conscious beings interacting with each other, relating, um, setting goals and fulfilling them, and our lives can still then be uh, be perfectly real. What's bad about, you know, the matrix may be a dystopia, but it's much more, I think, the element of control that the machines have. Yeah, we live in these, what is it? These short, repeating loops, <laughs> um, as, as someone says, and Morpheus says, I guess, the new Morpheus says. In the matrix, the machines are constantly triggering. They wiped out our memories and put us back in the uh, put us back in the matrix. They're constantly controlling our lives and rebooting this. And we have uh, what we do. We've got very little autonomy in what we do, and even less in in what happens. Okay, that's all bad, but that's not bad because it's the world is a simulation. You could have an equally bad scenario <laughs> that plays outside a simulation. The mm-hmm. matrix, maybe I don't know. It's not another planet. Mm. And the machines are controlling us there. They've still got little mind control things attached to our brains. So they control our actions. They wipe our memory. They constantly manipulate the environment. I think, you know, that would be just as bad as the matrix. So in my view, what's bad about the matrix is really this aspect of, uh, you know, the loss of freedom and the imposition of control, not the fact that none of this is real. So, yeah. And I think this is actually... I would, when I first started thinking this way 20 odd years ago, I thought of this as kind of a radical claim, but I actually think this is, I would like this to gradually become the common sense view (laughs) 
mm-hmm. of these matters. And I think, you know, for kids who grew up with a, mm. in digital environments, playing video games, living in virtual worlds, I think this is actually a very natural, a natural view to take. The digital objects are perfectly real objects and digital environments are environments where you can live a meaningful life but i think um i'm waiting for the i'm waiting for the creators of the matrix to come around to this every now and then i think <laughs> i see a, i see a moment of it but they haven't fully embraced the idea i was gonna say there is a recent movie free guy where uh i don't know if you've seen that <laughs> we one, have not where, uh, we have where, not which takes place in a takes place in a virtual world a video game world they all turn out to be non-player characters but they say, yeah, all this is real. <laughs> One of them says, I'm sitting here talking to my best friend, trying to get him through a hard time. If that's not real, I don't know what is. <laughs> I see Free Guy as a, as, as, a, uh, as, a, as a film which has the right philosophical ideology on these matters. But The Matrix is still a work in progress. I love this. I love this. So let's, <laughs> let's dig into this. So I want you to try to convince a, a skeptic of your views a little bit. So we'll play, I'll play devil's advocate here. So let's, let's take the situation described in The Matrix as our example. So in the first movie, one of the characters, uh, Cypher, goes back. He chooses to go back into The Matrix. He betrays his, his, his crew. And he is at one point, once he's back in The Matrix, He's eating a steak, and he says, You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. There's there's something very natural about that perspective, and that is different from your perspective. So, uh, tell so for someone who's in the audience, think just nodding along with Cipher there. What would you say to convince them that that he's he's actually wrong about that, and that he's eating a, he's eating a real steak? Well, you know, one thing we could say is it's not in a maybe there's like the original world and the derivative world. One thing is true, this is not, if there is a physical world out there out of which this virtual world was created, then somehow these stakes are going to be, you know, the virtual worlds are going to be, they're going to be copies of the original. You might think of them as being a bit like the shadows in Plato's cave, mm-hmm. the shadows of the original reality. But I don't see why merely being copies means that they're not, they're not real. After all, you know, we could be living in a world created by a god. Maybe this world was created by God in the image of heaven. So it could turn out that the stakes we eat every day are mere copies of stakes in heaven. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. there are no stakes in heaven mm-hmm. because we're all vegan and we just have wonderful, <laughs> uh, wonderful vegetarian stakes. But uh, nonetheless, I think what would be here would be real. So I think that's roughly the status of what goes on in the Matrix. And some of the intuitions that people have about the Matrix arise from it being you know, maybe fake merely in the sense of being a knockoff a of the mm. original. Mm. Mm. But I'd say that, you know, that doesn't, knockoffs are still real. Knockoff Rolexes are still real watches. Maybe they're not Rolexes, but, you know, they're still, um, they're still watches. And yeah. if you're lucky, they, will, they, they, they might even work. I guess I think of the Matrix as being like that. So we're in a world of real objects, but where somehow this was copied from the original. Well, I think that's really interesting, partly because in this movie, you have, you have a kind of, 
you have a circle a strawberry here because you have a strawberry from a which, matrix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which in the in the sort of physical non-matrix world is produced via information from the matrix world, which may or may not have been generated via information from the physical world. Maybe, but maybe right. not. So maybe it's just a um, hall of mirrors, but you do get that you can get it in the, in the opposite direction and you might think, well, that's a, in some sense, it's a real strawberry. I mean, it could taste totally different though. It could, could taste different. You know, you we don't different. know the loss of, right? Because in the first movie, the 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 tasty wheat yeah. conversation, how do they know what tasty wheat tasted like? Yeah. So maybe they're, you know, eating what we would taste like a blueberry. <laughs> <laughs> they got all, they got their wires crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Is it in the Matrix where everything tastes like chicken? Yeah, <laughs> they hadn't. They hadn't. Re they hadn't really, you know, worked on getting their uh, their virtual experiences full scale. <laughs> but in the future, you know, maybe the virtual worlds are going to have all kinds of amazing new experiences yeah. that go far beyond what we had. And let me try a different approach. So, so here's another argument that that your beliefs when you're in the Matrix. Let's let's use a mundane example that say. Um, uh, that I'm petting a cat, so so is is actually false. So okay, so let's set up the situation like this. So I'm again, we'll use the matrix as an example. So I jack into the matrix. So I have a body that exists in a reality that's not part of the matrix, and I, I access the matrix by plugging that body into whatever the how you know some into something which interacts with the virtual world of the matrix. Now you might say. Okay, so in the virtual world of the Matrix, uh, my avatar is petting a cat, but in the world outside of the Matrix, that I'm where my body that that is being used to jack into the Matrix uh, is, uh, it's just laying there. It's not doing anything. And so you might say, well, that shows that uh, you're not your belief that you are petting a cat, or that the thing that there is a cat in front of you that you're experiencing, um, that belief based on that experience is false because. Uh, there is no such cat in front of you because you're sitting in a dark room surrounded by wires. So uh, what what would be the response to that? I mean, yeah, this is an interesting scenario. I mean, a lot's going to depend on how you spell it out. One version of it, you were mostly hanging out in, the, uh, in an ordinary physical world and you've just made a trip, you've put on a VR headset, and now you're patting a, a digital cat in a digital world. And then Okay, then we're probably going to be inclined to say, I think in all of these scenarios, in some sense, you have two bodies. Mm. There's a uh, there's a potentially a physical body, and there's potentially a virtual body, an avatar. And if the physical body is being the thing you've normally regarded as your body, then uh, then you find yourself with an avatar that's, that's new and so on. And say, okay, well, my avatar is doing this stuff. You, you might not be inclined to say my ordinary body is doing this. On the other hand, if we take the scenario where you've lived your whole life in a simulation. Your whole world has been a digital world. Maybe unbeknownst to you out there, there's a, there's a next universe up where you have a, a body lying in a, uh, in a tank, as in the Matrix. Still, the thing that, you know, in that case, I would say this body, the, uh, the virtual body, that's what has been your body all along. That's what you have called your body all along. Whenever you, whenever you took actions and so on, you did it by the action of this, this body, this body, the digital body, was the way you interacted with your environment. So I basically think, you know, in that scenario, when I talk about my body, I'm talking primarily about the uh, the digital body, at least in ordinary context. Now, it gets tricky once you come to, you know, if you know about both levels and you move back and forth. Mm. And, I don't know, but at least in that initial scenario, I'm inclined to say, yeah, I am patting a cat is true because 
not only is this virtual body the only kind of body I've ever known, but yeah, virtual cats, digital cats, that's the only kind of cat I've ever known. And I'd say likewise that, you know, those are not fake cats. Those are those are those are the cats we've lived with. If it turns out turns out we're in a simulation, cats are real. So when I say I'm petting a cat, I'm actually saying something perfectly true. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So here's a question though. What happens with assessors? So now maybe this is going to be too much in the weeds, but I'm doing it because I have you here, Dave. So I want to ask this. Okay, so so I see how from a first-person perspective that will work. I'm in the virtual world. And so, you know, all the language I've used is hooked up to things in that virtual world. Um, But now, suppose I'm an individual who is observing someone from the higher-order reality who's jacked into, say, the Matrix... And I can see, I could read the code of the matrix, so I see what they're doing in the virtual reality. Um, what, do, what should, how should I regard uh, them? Because of course, I, I were you, you said this earlier that maybe I should regard them as sort of having two bodies, like they have the one body that's sitting in the in the tank, and then the other body in the virtual world. And I wasn't sure how far we should take that because one thing that could happen is we could end up saying some very strange things if we take this too far, and I'm not totally sure if I want to be on board with all that. So one thing we might end up saying is like, suppose I'm looking at Laura in the tank, and I see that in the virtual world, she's running around and say, well, Laura is sitting in a tank and running around at the same time. And I find that something somewhat uncomfortable, like that kind of language feels uncomfortable in a way. Um, It feels like I want to say something like, oh, well, part of her is in a tank and part of her is is running around or something like that there i want to find some resolution of this inconsistency so i was curious what what you thought about that so the perspective of the assessor now talking about the person in the virtual world yeah i mean i think in practice what happens in these cases is we develop distinctions in language to handle cases like this so we'll say something like yeah she's uh running in the virtual world but sitting in the physical world or we might say she's physically sitting but virtually running or or something like that you know the actual uh yeah the actual language that video gamers use is actually you know um super interesting here and people put maybe they put adjectives on sometimes you know like real new york whoops that was a philosophical mistake people (laughs) is real too but original new york Mm. um but i mean i think if you want to be strict then you know from the point of view of someone outside the matrix maybe we've just created a video game for the first time. Then I think our ordinary word body and cat and so on refers, assuming we're not in a simulation, refers to physical things, which aren't which aren't digital things. So if you if you wanted to ask strictly and literally for a person in this relatively naive situation, is she running around? We'd probably say no, mm. because running around, at least in our original meaning, means uh, running around, means physically running, not virtually running, refers to actions of one's physical body. On the other hand, once you get used to this, I think you rapidly start to describe this as saying uh, she's running around, at least running around in the virtual world. So it gets at least a little bit more symmetrical. And from the now from the point of view of someone who's always been in this simulation, even an assessor who's always been in this uh, in this simulation, I think what they would say is at least, again, if naively, they say, come on, of course she's running around. Mm-hmm. And then, what? You tell me there's something going on in the next world up there? Oh, I guess. Okay, now there's a distinction to be made mm. between ordinarily running around and, I don't know, heavenly running around, <laughs> however, however they refer to the... Uh, yeah. 
the world up there. So we'd either way, we're going to find ways to make these distinctions. I hope. So here's another question. So um, one of the central things in in that that's come out in this conversation is thinking about uh, not just these as descriptive questions, but as so in a way questions about conceptual engineering. How would or should our concepts change if we were having you know prolonged exposure to these virtual worlds or to individuals who are in these virtual worlds and so on? Um, do you think, though, that um, the innovation might occur in such a way which when you mark the things, you mark them with real and not real? So you could, I mm. mean, it could go this way where we basically say, hey, um, that's a real stake and the virtual stake, that's a virtual stake. And that's we and we distinguish them in that way. And we and we and if you were to say how many stakes are there, you'd be you wouldn't count the virtual stakes. I'm curious, like, do you think that I mean, that seems like it's an open possibility. I mean, people do talk that way. A lot. There's no question. People use the word real to mark what happens in the physical world and some contrast term to uh, not necessarily unreal, but, but anyway, but they don't describe things inside virtual worlds as real. There's, I guess there's two ways I can think about that. One is, well, okay, it's a philosophical mistake. <laughs> I mean, I don't claim that everybody <laughs> accepts my view. It's, yeah. uh, it's not yet the common sense view. I hope that it will eventually be. Uh, maybe it'll eventually be the common sense view. But even then, it may be that also, people could use words like real for something like the original world versus, you know, the new world, the derivative world. And that may be some part of what's going on as well. So, yeah, look, it does irritate me when people use the word real in this way. But that's just my, that's just my biases showing. I hope there'll be other ways to market. But another thing that could happen is that people would, I can imagine a world where people think about what goes on inside virtual worlds the way they think about what goes on inside movies. Mm or books. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of fictions. And yeah. if we mark them just the way we mark fictions, I think that would be a bad mistake. Now, I think people do that a little bit now, you know, video games or this kind of fiction-like element. I think when you think when people talk about what goes on in a world like Second Life, where they're actually having real proper interactions with other people, I think that tends not to be marked the way we mark fiction. In any case, if we did mark it that way, I think that would be a that would be a big mistake. So yeah, there are some, there are some, let's say, some sociolinguistic risks from my view here. I guess I just so can you is it possible to say briefly why it would be a mistake to regard the uh to to say that it what goes on in the virtual world is is merely fiction or to regard it the way we regard what happens in a film? Yeah, I mean, I do think there are some virtual worlds which are fictions. You play a Lord of the Rings video game. Um, that's more or less continuous with watching a Lord of the Rings movie mm -hmm. and uh, reading Lord of the Rings books. I mean, maybe you've got a special kind of agency in there, but nonetheless, there's a sense in which all this is happening. In a uh, you're playing a you're playing a role, and it's all playing happening inside a fiction. But I think that's actually continuous though with playing a Lord of the Rings a role a live action role playing game in the uh, in the physical world. We could we could run through all that non-virtually and it would be equally fictional so i don't think that really is, arises from the uh, from the digitality i think the kind of thing that goes on in non-game virtual worlds i mean second life is probably still the best known involves real ordinary communication ordinary interaction um people have jobs there people form relationships there um nothing particularly fictional about it mm. um a lot of this depends on what you mean by real and what you mean by uh, by illusory, what you mean by fictional. But I think basically, I mean, our basic attitude, I think, when using virtual worlds like Second Life, um, I sometimes hang out with other philosophers inside a 
virtual world and have a conversation. It's not, there's nothing particularly fictional about that mode of interaction. So mm-hmm. that's just at the phenomenological level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like fiction. At the philosophical level, I can give you a lot of arguments for, well, depending on what you mean by real, real means has causal powers. Mm-hmm. Well, all these things, these digital objects in virtual worlds, they have causal powers. They do all kinds of things. Real means independent of my mind. Ah, they're all out there independent of my mind. Real means non-illusory. I'll make an argument that none of these things are illusions. So that way, all that is kind of involved in making the case that these things are real rather than fictional. I do think of the the fictionalist about about virtual worlds as a very worthy opponent here. And many, many theorists of the virtual have adopted the view that it's a somehow some kind of some kind of fiction. But I don't think it ultimately gets things completely right. What I think is so great about this book, we're, to, we're basically, for the audience, we're, we're, we're going back and forth about uh, this book, Reality Plus, which, which you should check out. It's available now. Um, and it just will raised, be available January 25th. January actually. 25th, excuse me. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Pre-order. January 25th. <laughs> um, Very good. Pre-orders now. From a- but, you know, it's, it raises so many interesting philosophical questions because these are really foundational philosophical questions about what exists, what it is to do something, like what it is to run around what it is to be, right? Being is a is a verb. It's an action. Um, it's or it's a state. And uh, what 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 makes it the case that something exists? And and what what you're doing is you're probing these deep philosophical questions via a technology, a nascent, relatively nascent technology um, that we have seen. You know, with our imaginations, have let wild and run wild, and we've seen sort of possible futures of that technology and you're allowing that sort of speculative science fiction to like illustrate the 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 philosophical ideas here which i I think is really awesome and really rich and um yeah yeah i call that techno philosophy which is kind of using the technology to drive your uh your philosophy and this is already kind of pretty familiar in some domains especially ai artificial intelligence people think about artificial minds could a machine be conscious and so on then they think okay what, is, what could this actually tell us about, about human minds? Well, likewise, I think with virtual reality, but here are the cases, what VR gives us is artificial realities. And we think about the case of artificial reality, super interesting in its own right. But I think that actually reflecting on this in the right way can actually tell us a lot about our relationship to ordinary reality, even if ordinary reality is not, is not virtual. So I really like this kind of interplay between technology and philosophy and something like the Matrix movies just provides such a wonderful fertile ground for doing that. So I think this leads us to the next topic, which is whether you can lead a good life in a virtual world. And I mean, I I think we already know your view, Dave, <laughs> which is yeah, that, it's, that is not that much different from real life. So of course you can lead a good life. But, um, but I'm curious, um, maybe this will be an opportunity to say a bit more about, about some of these themes. Um, because I, I'll try to articulate the um, counterpoint here. Um, so there's this very, there's this sort of famous thought experiment by Robert Nozick called the Experience Machine, and it's basically you, you, you have the opportunity to go inside this, basically put yourself in a, in a matrix-like pod, and then just have the experiences of doing all of these wonderful things. Um, but the claim goes, uh, you wouldn't, you won't really be doing them. Um, because uh, they'll just be happening to you and um, your body will just be sitting in the pot. Yeah, obviously, you reject that reading of the experience machine, but I think many people find when it's initially presented to them the notion of the experience machine somewhat repulsive. 
And it could be for many reasons why they find it repulsive and they would not want to enter and they think you shouldn't enter the experience machine, some of which we can clean up. But I think a part of it is that um, is relies on the claim that, well, yes, you would be having the experience of climbing a mountain, but you wouldn't really be climbing a mountain, so you wouldn't be accomplishing anything. You'd just be sitting in your chair uh, being fed intravenously or whatever. The experience machine is interesting. Uh, we did a poll, of a survey of philosophers recently about a bunch of philosophical questions. And one of the questions was, yeah, the experience machine, would you enter? And yeah, only 13% of philosophers said, yes, wow. would you spend your life there? And 73% said no. Now, I should say, I voted no. I said, I would not enter the experience machine. And the reason is, I, do, I think the, experience, the way Nozick describes the experience machine, there are some extra things about it that make it extra bad, I think, compared to an ordinary virtual world. And the biggest the biggest disanalogy, I think, is the way Nozick describes the experience machine. It's all pre-programmed. Basically, mm -hmm. you go in there and it just unrolls the script. Your life is basically scripted. Yeah, maybe you'll win the, the, uh, the chess tournament. You'll become a leading philosopher. You'll climb mountains. But all of that is just a script playing out in advance in which you really, in a sense, it looks like you didn't really have any agency in making that happen. It all just happens to you. And I agree, that's bad. We want to have meaningful life. Many of us want to have meaningful life, real agency, real accomplishments, um, and so on. But I think ordinary virtual reality, I mean, needn't be like the experience machine. In fact, it usually isn't. We make our own, even just in ordinary VR with a headset, we get to make our own decisions, move around as we choose, exercise free will and agency. It's not scripted for us in advance. So I guess I think yeah, that for me, that's the leading intuition about what's bad about the experience machine is the pre-programming compromising our autonomy. But I don't think that needs to be present in a virtual world. Now, Nozick himself actually, interestingly, did go on in a later piece around uh, yeah, 20 or 30 years after the experience machine came out in a magazine article around 2000. He talked about real virtual reality and said, I don't like that either. Hmm. Yeah, even virtual reality, it's like, ah, still none of that stuff is real. But here, I think, we're probably, to some extent, having a philosophical disagreement. He thinks all that's an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't count for anything. Whereas I think what goes on in virtual worlds needn't be illusory. And you can have real, genuine achievements and accomplishments in virtual worlds. I mean, the virtual worlds we have today are pretty primitive. You know, they're mostly a lot of the most developed ones are video game worlds. And maybe the kinds of achievements you can have in video game worlds are mm -hmm. kind of limited. But once they're full scale, I don't see that it has to be that kind of limitation. Yeah, in, in particular, I think you have in mind a virtual world which is largely similar to our world in that, I mean, I imagine that there are virtual worlds where you you couldn't live a good life, That's not, but that's that's not really at issue here. The point is that there are virtual worlds where you can live a good life. Um, I, for example, a virtual world where you couldn't live a good life would be like a frustrator world, right? Like, so one where you go in, you can yeah. exert causal control, but every time you try to do something eventually it doesn't work out for you because the, the the machines have programmed it to piss you off and screw everything up. And another virtual world where you might not be able to live, live a good life is just the solipsistic world. If you were to enter it, then you would be not causally interacting with any other people. And I'm actually curious, that actually leads me to one other question, but what if, what if there was a virtual world? Because I, th I take it that, well, let me ask you, I don't want to, I don't want to presuppose. Do you think that the computer programs uh, in the matrix are persons now let's let's grant them like i don't know let's grant them enough 
computational power and stuff so that they, you know, can at least, I don't know, you know, pass the Turing test and blah, 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 and do much more than that. But do you think that they are persons? Because that, that actually raises another interesting question, which is, if they are persons, and they're not only persons, they're real persons, then we we, we might and very likely do have oblig would have obligations to them um, in virtue of that, just like we have obligations to persons here. And um, that would create, I think, a lot of really interesting scenarios where you could very well live a good life in a solipsistic matrix then, because as long as it's constituted by, there's no other people in the in the higher level sense in there, but there's just virtual beings, but those virtual beings are purely virtual beings, but those purely virtual beings are persons and thus you could engage with them in the, in the, in the way that, you know, in a mean, meaningful way. So I'm curious what you think about that, those kinds of scenarios. Yeah, I think in principle, artificial beings can be, uh, can be persons. Um, the beings in the matrix, I mean, I think it's probably cases and cases, at least in the first movie. Oh, the agents totally look like uh, persons, even though they're, uh, even though they're artificial, I think they're kind of presented as being, as being conscious, mm. as being full of thoughts and full of, full of agency. Maybe there are some other beings. I don't know. Uh, the woman in red in the construct in the first movie. Maybe she's just scripted, not not a full blown person. Maybe some of the bots you see in the uh, in the fourth movie they seem to be very directly controllable by the robots, depending on just what's going on with them. They may or may not be uh, be persons. If the rest of the time they're leading normal lives and, yeah, as you said, pass the Turing test and so on, then I'm inclined to think prima facie evidence that they're people. In my view, very good. I don't see any obstacles to AIs being conscious, so they may well be conscious. So, yeah, I think um, if it turns out that we're in a I mean, this could actually be our actual scenario. We could be living <laughs> out a simulation. I could be one of those beings myself. Yeah. Right. You two could be could be uh, beings like that as well. We could all be artificial intelligences at some level. I think we're still, nevertheless, having this nice conversation, having a perfectly meaningful interaction. Now, if I was just to head into an experience machine, if I'm not in a virtual world and I head into an experience machine where everyone's an AI, then I don't know. That might be a, that might be a different matter. I value. I value my family and sure. my friends, and maybe I value my con specifics and so on. So it would at least be a radical change to go into that kind of virtual world populated only by AIs. But I still think in principle, I could have meaningful relationships with them as well. Are you going to leave me and my <laughs> son immediately for an experience machine? Yes or no? No, I'm not. Well, just, I'm just curious. I'm just, you know, I'm trying on the ideas. I'm trying on the ideas. I'm, are you one of those 13%? Like, yes, experience machine. Does it bother you the scripted part? Because bonus, no. you would never get a cold. I Look, I'm a compatibilist about free will, so the scripted part doesn't bother me. <laughs> So that's fine. Um, I feel like you're like, sign me the hell up for experience machine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I think is really interesting about this is I'm just playing out this stuff, Dave, because I haven't really, I've looked at the book quite, very quickly, but uh, I, I haven't, um, I haven't delved into it in much detail, but, but I mean, there's another interesting thing. By the which, way, we have, there's a great illustration in the book of Nozick himself in the experience machine. Perfect. And it turns out that, uh, that you know, his experience, he has to be a successful Harvard professor <laughs> writing, book, writing all these award-winning books and so on. Of course he's in the experience yep. machine. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a there's an interesting read of the fourth movie now from your perspective, which is like, you know, this war between the machines and the humans. And we talked about the binary stuff being sort of a big 
issue and being needing to be overturned and that being a potential resolution of the conflict. But if the machines, obviously the machines are real, uh, but then if we also agree that the virtual, you know, the matrix has all these virtual beings in it, which, which are also real, um, and their reality then, their existence depends on the human beings who are powering them. Because if the power plug is pulled, they will all go out of existence. And so it's interesting that these computational beings, they also, there's, you know, in a way, like, you know, you might think Neo is fighting for the humans who are invaded. But in a way, you might think he should also be fighting for the programs, which are, which are there as well, which, whose existence depend on him and his, uh, you know, him, the power that, that he, he gives them. So, you know, it is a little bit like, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you switched your perspective, all of a sudden, a lot more things that matter are going to come into view. All of these, you know, all of these other entities in, in reality. Uh, and many of them are going to be things that have a lot of value, uh, a lot of intrinsic value to them. And I just find that really interesting. And it gives, it really, it, I think in a way, the movie is hinting towards something like this in this like overturning of the binary and the machine and the war is, is, it's really where we have to recognize that we're kind of all on a par. Um, I think it is kind of moving in that direction, although it doesn't go there all the way. Yeah, actually, if the machines really do depend on us humans in this way, the situation is maybe a little bit reminiscent of this famous philosophical Thought experiment by Judith Jarvis Thompson, of the violinist mm -hmm. who attaches himself overnight to a to a human, uh, I guess to a woman, because it's meant to be an, an analogy with with uh, with abortion, and says, "Okay, well, you know, um, you can't kill me. I depend on you for my life. You have to you have to keep me here for the next uh, next nine months. It would be murder to kill me." Well, likewise, if um, yeah, if we if the machines really did depend on us for our existence, and if our disconnecting ourselves from the matrix was to kill the uh, kill the machines. Then, yeah, the machines might, machines might try complaining against us in the same way the uh, the violinist does. Of course, now one disanalogy between the uh, on one way of telling the story, the violinist actually put himself there deliberately, and you might think that kind of removes his right to complain. Likewise, mm -hmm. if the machines exploiting us like this deliberately, that um, that would remove to some considerable extent their right. To complain now, mind you, I was never—I mean, like most people, I was never terribly convinced by this, by this, uh, this cover story that the uh, that the Matrix is just treating humans like batteries to power the uh, power the machines. I mean, it runs contrary to all known laws of thermodynamics or anything like this <laughs> at work. So I'm inclined to think this is just a cover story, and there's actually something far more, far more nefarious going on. So I prefer just to forget the whole mm. humans are powering. The matrix aspect. If we remove that, though, I think the point, though, still becomes very relevant. Yeah, whatever we do with the matrix, you have to think number one about all the humans attached to the matrix, some of whom may be having good lives there. To just destroy the matrix world would be awful for those humans, I think. And likewise, there may be actually, depending on how the matrix is run, there may be a whole lot of machines who are living out lives in the matrix as well. And absolutely, we have to uh, we have to respect those. Some of those machines may be our adversaries, the agents, mm -hmm. for example. Then maybe our relationship to them, you know, I think the relationship between the humans and those machines is maybe like the relationship between humans on different sides of a war. Sure, we're not required to respect their interests. You know, we can kind of take our side, but still, they are they are persons who de deserve respect. 
But yeah, there may be other machines in there who are not particularly involved involved in exploiting us, who just got created as part of the matrix. And I think, yeah, well, they are kind of non-competence here, non-combatants here. They uh, they really deserve respect, and we ought to, yeah, think seriously about them. So yeah, I did like the way that in this fourth movie, for the first time, we got to see a human machine being well less of a binary, or at least less aligned with the good versus bad mm-hmm. binary. We had uh, we had machines who are who are who are good, who deserve respect, who are pro-freedom and, auto- and autonomy and so on. So maybe that's, uh, yeah, someone pointed out that, that, you know, the new movie often hints at dissociating various binaries, uh, human versus machine, good versus bad, physical versus virtual, truth versus deception. There are a couple of... Uh, freedom versus versus control mm. what i would love to see happening is you know i, I mean lena wachowski is all about like dissolving uh you know dissolving binaries makes a few mm. references to that in the movie i would love to see a version of matrix 5 and matrix 6 where they go full whole hog on this and you know maybe machines and humans from the matrix get together to liberate uh some machines in the uh in the physical world mm-hmm. And somehow we see that, you know, freedom is the fundamental value here. And you can do that whether you're humans or machines, whether you're physical or virtual. What would what would actually be really cool? Here's the kind of here's an idea just on this point is we should expect there to be human computational being babies. Babies. Right. Yeah. We should be, expect that people are mm. going to have sex with computational beings in mm-hmm. the matrix and create within the matrix. Comp- I guess they would be computational beings. But computational beings, which are basically the product of the of these two, and now that we have in this, I want to come to the now exomorphic exo whatever morphic codex or whatever the thing that allows Morpheus, who's a program in this, to ga- gain a kind of uh, physical one level up uh, self. You might think actually a really cool idea would be to say that was what Neo was. You know, mm-hmm. like Neo is supposed to be this guy who contains code. He contains source code. In his mm. physical body, I guess. I never quite understood that. Yeah, but now you, but, you have an explanation. Well, no, but if 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 Neo was basically the computational descendant of a human and a and a and a machine, and then his physical body was effectively one of these exomorphic codex things, like a really advanced one. So he has a physical body, but he also has like, you know, but he ultimately is a computational being. That would explain why he has the code and why he has a certain degree of power. It would also be really interesting if that was the resolution, right? That often is the resolution in these movies of, in you know, in these famous conflicts and things that like, it's the person who lives in, who has one foot in both worlds mm-hmm. that show, that brings the two sides together. The like, uh, the half, the, you know, person who had a half breed, right? And, um... And that's how, that would be really cool. I don't know. That would have been a really neat way to be like, that's how we overturn the binary is it a true integration of the two, uh, of the digital and the and the the non-digital. Um, and and to your point, David, I think if if that stuff's happening, I think people are gonna be very cautious about saying those babies that I produced are not real. <laughs> I think right. like it's gonna feel really hard to be like well that's not a real kid because you know you should be like well he is the co- he is the causal descendant of you and things that you did in this in this virtual world and so anyway i think that that could be a maybe we should just pitch lana wachowski on this right now 
Yeah, there's lots of ways it could go. I mean, one version of it, maybe Neo's the offspring of two machines. Maybe, I don't know, the Oracle and the Architect got together <laughs> inside the Matrix, had a, inside the simulation, had a virtual child by virtual childbirth. And then at some point, this child got, what was Morpheus's technology again? Exomorphically yeah. transferred yeah. <laughs> to, the, uh, to the physical world. And maybe even put in a pod up there. I don't know. Wow. Um, boy, you bring someone back to the physical world and then you put them in a pod. Why? But Neo doesn't actually need to be in the pod because uh, he, could, he could actually be down there, down there computationally. Maybe when he jacks in, that's what really happens. It's not his brain doing all this stuff. It's, like <laughs> it's, it's, it's the old code that's really kicking into action. Yeah. But if it's, if it's on the other hand, if it's a human in a vat having sex with a machine, well, it's kind of. It's already weird. What happens when two humans inside the matrix uh, reproduce? Yeah, you know, at a certain point, presumably, there's a you know, there's, okay, there's a virtual sex act. Yeah, and there's like a virtual embryo and virtual fetus. Um, at some point, at what point does you know does something actually happen in the out out in the physical world? I'm guessing that at some point, maybe whenever conception happens inside the matrix, and at that moment. Then the machines say, damn, okay, let's uh let's go to this person's pod and go to this person's pod and get a sperm and an egg and mix it up in a <laughs> test tube and implant it into a little fetus vat of its own. <laughs> now, when does that happen? You know, first it all all those theological questions, moment of conception, yeah. moment of birth, first trimester, second trimester, but yeah. I and like that idea, do, though, that the machines are just yeah. following our own agency. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, and that's actually was one of these other things like that that came up, and and we don't need to go into this in detail, but just this that in the earlier Matrix's metaphysics uh, paper, Dave, you 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 used the Matrix scenario as a model of Cartesian dualism, but there, it, it you know you you hinted it could be a kind of you know, it, it, trying to account for causation between the levels is complicated and how that's exactly going to go. But this would be a case, you know, it, we're all thinking of cases where like, it's the higher level that causes stuff at the, in the virtual level. But this would be a case of mm -hmm. stuff in the virtual level causing stuff in the, in the like embedding level, which is uh, kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like interactionist dualism, you know, you've got the body and the mind, the body affects the mind, the mind affects... The body, if you're in the matrix, your body is all here inside yep. the matrix, but your mind, what's actually controlling your action and doing your thinking is up there in the uh, up there in the pod. So that pod directs your action, but yeah, it gets signals back too. And how did it get there in the first place? Well, because some people had sex in the physical world. That's presumably how it worked according to Descartes. Somehow, I don't know whether it's like sex creates souls or what. <laughs> not, not, uh, it's not sophisticated enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's certainly what's happening inside the Matrix. Oh man, this is this is great. I I I actually I had not anticipated we were going to get to sex in the Matrix, but it's this is great. I think this is going to be like I, some people have got to be talking about this somewhere, but we're talking yes. about it here on Cows in the Field. <laughs> um, oh yeah, this kind of gets at your question of um of the loops of control on the Matrix and the world above. It's totally puzzling to me in these movies that yeah when the when the machines want something to happen inside the matrix, the way they got to do it is to send down these agents who are going to, you know, have Kung Fu fights and <laughs> gun battles and car chases yeah. with people inside, inside the matrix. And yeah, sometimes if the human has a, got a slightly faster car or, 
better uh, better at kung fu than the the humans win it's always like come on you're the machines you control the matrix you have the source code for you know that road those buildings these avatars you can make anything happen so why don't the machines just you know any video game programmer would know i can just go okay i can just change the matrix and uh just like that kill those people or kill those avatars at least at the uh at the just with a with a line of code. So why is it the machines can't do that? It seems that for whatever reason, um, their only way of acting on the matrix is via the agents. It's like God's only way of acting on this physical world was via humans. You, know, you might think God can bring earthquakes and hurricanes and whatever can create the world or destroy it. But no, as if God is God has all these powers, but has to act on the world via human beings. What I mean. I don't know if there's any kind of explanation in story of why this happens. They say the Matrix has rules. Yes. Right. Well, there's this history of people rejecting previous forms of the Matrix. I'm just thinking like Inception, when you mess around with the world too obviously, then your like projections start to like figure out that they're in a dream. Mm. I'm just wondering if you are, if you're moving roads around and things like if you're sort of too obviously messing with the metaphysics of the, of the, of the world in the Matrix with more people become aware that they're in a matrix right. and then go to live in Zion. And this would be like destabilizing right. for the machines. Maybe every now and then though, in a world shattering gun battle finale. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This agents don't really follow the rules that you know, of the physical rules we have to follow by, 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 by too. Like they're, yeah. just, they're you know, turning into other, basically anybody can turn into an agent at any time. So that would weird me out if you turned into an agent. Yeah. <laughs> I like this idea that it is somehow like Are his eyes flashing green now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what does he say? Like a a sur- What is it? Surge. He just says we seed the population with with bots. Nobody call it's called like surge. Oh, bot swarm. Bot swarm. Swarm. Is sick swarm, fun. Mode. swarm mode is yeah. swarm sick mode. fun. That's what he says. Sick fun. Um, <laughs> but no, but I like this idea that that it, I like the idea though that it is some you're constrained by what we would reject as as you know, as it has to, like, it's, it's postulating this idea that humans, there's like a certain like innateness to our minds. Like we have an innate and it, cause most of these people grew up in the matrix. So like you would think if there was a pure, you know, if it was, if empiricism was true, they'd be fine with that, whatever they give them, you know, like all bridges suddenly move. That's fine. But no, Mm -hmm. I think, I think the postulation is no, we have certain innate ideas and it's not conditioned on our experience and bridges moving randomly and that kind of stuff, like, or whatever, like, code in- injunctions could happen, that would somehow lead us to, like, reject this as a reality. And then, like, we, I don't know, we can, our brains, like, dissociate or something, and then we're no longer a usable battery. Um, and so I like this idea that they're constrained in this way. And actually, it thinking about the Matrix as a God hypothesis, actually, that tells you something maybe also about if, like, you think about God as the Matrix simulator, which you do it sometimes in the book. Um, then you might say it gives you an answer. So maybe you could say like, yeah, God could do these things, just like the simulators in the Matrix could do these things. But if they were to do it, it would sort of like destabilize all of reality in a way because the reality Mm -hmm. would become rejected. And then, you know, so God is constrained not by because God can't do these things, but he's constrained by like us. We are the ones who constrain God because we would reject the reality if God were to intervene more directly. This is a bit like God respecting our free will, right? Presumably God could control us, but for whatever reason, God has chosen to respect our free will because, I don't know, we just couldn't be autonomous beings otherwise without it, and God thinks that's valuable. So maybe something like that could be going on in the Matrix too. Yeah. 
So I think anyway, I think that's that's part of I think that's part of the at least it kind of gets revealed in the in the reloaded where they talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. But um because but the but fer- I, very first one is like almost is a paradise, right? Yeah, the architect creates, yeah, right? Apparently. Cause that's my feeling about why I would reject the experience machine. But that was based on your like very cursory description of it to me last night. Was just like if there's no if there's no suffering, then the good stuff doesn't mean as much. Yeah. I'm okay with a lot of good stuff. I know you stuff. don't want to have a body <laughs> is what it is. You don't want to have to have any sense sensory experience at all. <laughs> Little suffering goes a long way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Justin's <laughs> like, I'm all done with suffering. I need like infantism. I'll just take all suffering. the accolades now. Thank um, you. <laughs> but I also think that just to your point about the Kung Fu and stuff, I, I, I think it's basically just that's, I think that's supposed to be hacking. So they're like hacking each mm-hmm. other. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, for whatever reason, the hacking has to take a physical form. Now, uh, I see. why does it have to take the form of fighting? I'm not totally sure, but there could be an answer to that, which is like, what is the most direct form of conflict is just like, in, if, you're in a, if you're simulating a physical world, it would be like punching each other. It'd be trying to like kill someone or something like that. So that's why the, the, it all takes the form of violence. But This also reminds me of a related question. Why when the, when the hackers are hacking into the matrix, do so they just see these big sequences of ones and zeros? <laughs> I mean, maybe they're just like uber great hackers who just get everything down of a level of machine code. That no hacker <laughs> in the history of the world really is. <laughs> we all know that you don't you don't want ones and zeros to for efficient interaction no. with, a, with the digital world. Yeah, you need you got you got to have much better interfaces than that. But maybe these guys are super talented, or maybe we're just seeing a projection. Yeah, maybe yeah, that's really good. I, I've I've thought about yeah, I thought about that too. I'm not sure how they're in how they're what. You know those those symbols that streak down. I don't yeah. know what what kind, they talk about that as like the code. I don't know if it's binary or, or if it's the machine code or if it's some higher level thing. But they also look at it sometimes. Maybe it's hexadecimal. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Zero but through I, nine, eight through f. Yeah, I don't know what the symbols are. I I, I don't mm. know. It's like some made up language. But but they do sometimes yeah. look at it in a, in a visual representation. So they have these mm. kind of which I I imagine looks like what it would look like to us like looking at a video game. Like it, it's like a kind of a shittier version. It doesn't resolve all mm. the detail. But anyway, the Matrix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dave, can I ask you one last question? Which is, I want to know: mm-hmm. Is the Matrix your favorite philosophical film, or do you have another philosophical film that you like that you would want to, you know? Uh, suggest to the audience to to go check out matrix probably is my favorite philosophical film actually just because it's so rich and i also have thought so much about it um and yeah there's so many themes are right there but i teach a course regularly though called minds and machines at nyu and we do a lot of stuff always through film and tv and actually there's three different parts of the course there's reality focusing on virtual reality there's minds focusing on the mind, and there's machines focusing on AI. And each of them has uh, some films which are really central. For VR, I think, you know, The Matrix is the paradigm, but I don't know, I mentioned Free Guy as well, mm-hmm. this new video game movie this year. That is great. And, well, not a film, but Black Mirror. So many episodes mm-hmm. of Black Mirror are amazing for, uh, for VR themes, whether it's whether it's Hang the DJ, where you simulate a relationship a thousand times, or San Junipero, where people upload after death. Um, those are all amazing in the uh, in the VR stream. But then on the uh, kind of the mind and AI side, there's a bunch of other co- really cool films. Um, Being John Malkovich mm. is wonderful for illustrating consciousness. Or uh, uh, Memento, the one where they 
the guy writes all the stuff on his arms because that's <laughs> it, that's the only form of memory he has. This is a great way of illustrating the idea of the extended mind that things outside your your brain can become mm. part of your uh, part of your mind. So actually, as every film is philosophical if you look at it in the uh, in the right way. But the last few years, I think, it, well, TV also mm-hmm. between film and TV, there's been so much great material for thinking philosophically. And in fact, what I've ended up what I ended up trying to do in this new book, Reality Plus, was to pretty well introduce every new idea with an example from film, TV, literature, usually usually science fiction. I mean, science fiction got to all these ideas often well before uh, well before the the philosophers did. Um, and there's just such a rich there's just such rich fertile ground there. Well, thanks so much, Dave, for being here. Um, and again, we want to just say Reality Plus is the book. It was available, what did you say, January 25th? Yeah. 2022. And it's a book which can and should be read by non-philosophers, right? It's a, it's a general Totally, book. totally. Yeah. It is a serious work of philosophy, but it's meant to be a, a book that anybody can read. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of people who are totally non-academic have read it and enjoyed it. It has Excellent. great illustrations has 57 wonderful illustrations by an illustrator called Tim Peacock, who did amazing work um, for this book. Yeah, there's a lot about the Matrix and a lot about the metaverse and a lot about science fiction. And at the same time, there's a lot of really serious philosophy in there. So, um, you know, you can read it for the uh, for the examples and the scenarios. You can read it for thinking about the technology or you can read it for thinking about the uh, the philosophy. So hopefully something there for everybody. But, Excellent. Uh, hopefully this show, this show will be being on this podcast will be my, uh, <laughs> my route to a fame, fortune and stardom. On the uh, circuit. We, yeah, we cannot get, we cannot guarantee that. But nope. uh, again, thanks for being here. This was a total joy. We are at cows pod on Twitter. You can follow us uh, uh, on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com. And in two weeks, we will be talking to Sam Adams of Slate about Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2. So it should be fun. All right, we'll see you guys next time. 